You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long-cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1, O-U-T-D-O-O-R, and the number one. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. The Houseman XP Podcast Network is taking you on the journey. Your host, Master Trainer Heath Hyatt, will combine his decades of experience as a houndsman and as a professional trainer that will light the path forward and make our packs lighter on this lifelong journey to become better hunters and houndsmen. There are no shortcuts, so lace up those boots and grab a dog leash. The journey begins now. Hey guys, the journey on Houndsman XP is teamed up with Go Wild. Go Wild is a social media platform that was made for hunters by hunters. If you guys and gals have listened to any of the other podcasts that I've been on, you know what a huge outdoor enthusiast I am. I love being in the woods with my hounds. There's nothing more exciting than hearing the thunder of a spring gobbler. I love fishing for trout in the brooks and the streams, and I love being on the river chasing that ever-elusive fish of a thousand cast, the muskie. Go Wild is the place that I can post my trophies, hunts, and memories without being censored. But Go Wild is so much more than that. It's a place to share your stories, sharpen your skills, hone your tactics, get gear reviews, and shop for anything outdoors. When you make a purchase from the Go Wild store, everything is free shipping. Anything that you purchase anywhere in the country, no matter how big, free shipping. So go down to the show notes, click on the Go Wild link at the bottom, and get signed up today. And let's go wild. Hey, I just want to jump in real quick and remind everybody to be logging your time spent listening to the Houndsman XP podcast on Go Wild. When you log your time listening to the Houndsman XP podcast between now and June 30th, you are going to be entered into a drawing for a brand new Dakota 283 G3 medium kennel. Every time you listen, log your time. Every time you log your time, you get another chance to win. 
So between now and June 30th, make sure you're logging your time over on Go Wild. Take it away, Heath. Hey guys, on this episode of The Journey, we're going to stay in Virginia. And I have a really uh, special guest with me today, but we're going to travel up 81 and cut across the dreaded 66 towards D.C., but we're going to stop just a little short in Fredericksburg. And today I have Ariel Paldunas with me. She is a retired Marine working dog handler. And then she, when she got out of the military, she started doing private contracting for a cadaver dog and was actually deployed back overseas to look for remains of our soldiers. And then once she completed that tour, she come back stateside and started working at a couple different uh, canine training facilities, and I'll let her tell you about that, where she implemented some programs. She has got her bachelor's in biology and neuroscience, and the neuroscience part is very interesting, so we're gonna, we'll are gonna we dig into that a little bit later. But she continued to work as a, traini- a canine handler and train dogs, and she is a very accomplished PSA uh, handler, and I'll let her tell you about that too. And she done stuff, she owned her own business, and then, then she worked for uh, the pet companion, or she done the... Um, what would you say that is, Eric? You, you just done obedience for the civilians. Yep, 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 that's right. But this is Ariel Perdunas, and she's a friend of mine, and I am excited and honored that she's on our show. So how are you today, Ariel? I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's an honor, and uh, hopefully I can share some of my experiences and um, tell some people how I got into hounds after my career in working dogs (laughs) yeah so i want so give us a little bit of rundown on i mean i know i kind of went over it but i just kind of scratched the surface so enlighten everybody with your wealth of knowledge because that's what you're bringing (laughs) to us today is a wealth of knowledge well thank you um (laughs) i my so my background um is not in hounds uh i was uh the other day, I listened to social media done right with Brad Luttrell, and I laughed when he said um, he wasn't familiar with the terminology. Um, he didn't come from a hunting family because that's that's kind of my background. Um, I didn't grow up in a hunting family, but I grew up in a working dog family. Um, my mom is a trainer. Um, after I left home, I joined the Marines and became a canine handler. I handled a bomb dog. For, I did one enlistment. Um, got out. I went to work for Tar Heel Canine in North Carolina, uh, trained police dogs and handlers there, and then decided I wasn't done with deployments. I went back overseas with my cadaver dog, Blitzen, um, for the DOD, and we went to Iraq and did some missions in Iraq and Afghanistan looking for remains of um, soldiers and coalition forces. Um, when I came back from there, I... Let's see, I worked on a couple different contracts uh, having to do with military working dogs. I was a program manager for a company that wanted to start an experimental uh, bomb dog program. I spent some time in West Virginia at Logan Haas Kennels um, helping with the, the puppy raising yep. and helped mm-hmm. develop a detection program there. Um, 
Then I took a break from dogs for a while to finish my degree in biology with a minor in neuroscience. And then I had my own business and then worked for Ridgeside Canine as a contractor for about a year and a half doing pet obedience. And now I decided to take a break from working dogs professionally so I could enjoy my own dogs. And I, I work at Quantico for the Marine Corps once again. I can't stay away from the military, but uh, I, do, I do curriculum development there now. Right. So I want to go back a little bit. So for everybody, I know you, you and I know when you say Tar Heel Canine, it's Jerry Bradshaw. And I always pick on Jerry because he got his bachelor's from Virginia Tech, but then he went and got his master's at um, North Carolina. And I always pick on him when I see him that he's actually a tech fan, but he 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 just laughs about it. But so Jerry, Jerry does a lot of sport and protection work. He does train uh, police dogs and does military classes very very good at the control of a dog um like i said i've sat through numerous classes talked to him numerous times and then you went up to mike's which is the logan hoss and um, mike's really big into breeding his own dogs and genetics is that correct yep yeah. yeah so we um we had a lot of litters when i was there so i got to do a a lot of hands-on with uh you know newborn puppies to um, you know, some of the dogs we kept and until they were old enough to sell as police dogs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, <clears throat> I mean, my, I guess Mike's still running here. I still see his stuff pop up here and there. So, yeah. Um, so that's a thing. And I want you to tell us a little bit about your PSA history, because I think that's important for people to know what, what did you accomplish in PSA that most people don't? Sure. So um, the same dog that I did the cadaver detection overseas with, uh, she was the first dog I raised from a puppy, uh, Malinois. And, um, you know, one of those dogs that once in a lifetime dog, of course, my first dog is my once in a lifetime dog. And um, I'm trying not to be kennel blind, but she was she was really a special dog in that she was very versatile. So I can't take all the credit for our accomplishments. I had a really good dog, but um, I was the first female trainer to get a PSA three. Um, and Blitzen is uh, still one of the highest scoring dogs in, in all the levels. Um, I, I'm not aware of exactly where she falls, but I know, you know, we took home the, the highest scoring award every year. And, um, yeah, so I, I have yet to compete again in PSA. I've just, uh, you know, kind of the detection endeavors took over, but that was a accomplishment I'm really proud of and I'm glad I got to do it with such a special dog. And for people that don't know, that is a highly sought-after title that is not easy to come by. I don't know the statistics on how many you know dogs in the United States are PSA three titled, but I know that some of our local clubs here, the people that I've you know trained with or helped train me or vice versa, you know they they're chasing that title too, and they have not got to that that level yet. So that is an awesome feat um for for any person in in any any canine i think so that's Thank that you. says a lot about you know and like i said you and i've talked and you know we have kind of have a relationship and i i know the work that you've put in and um especially you know being with jerry and up at mike's i mean that's a that's a that's a world of knowledge along, along itself um but yeah so back to when you were at Mike's and you were talking about pups and stuff. So we're going to, mm-hmm. we're going to hit that topic as we go, but all right. So you went from police dogs and military dogs and you went from this structured environment, um, 
with with the way that we handle dogs and the way we do things to how in the world did you get tied up with hounds? <laughs> well, it was definitely not something I had any exposure to, um, not growing up, even uh, as a, a working dog trainer. I, I maybe trained two or three uh, hounds for human tracking, and then I have friends who run their um, – bulldogs and, you know, bully mixes on, on hogs in addition to uh, doing protection sports with them. But it, it wasn't something I ever thought I would get into. Not, not for any reason except it just wasn't, I didn't have the access. And then um, I met my boyfriend Taylor in uh, fall, late fall of uh, 2020. And I'd say probably our first conversation was, uh, you know, it had to involve dogs because dogs consume my life and he tells me, well, he's getting into bear hunting and he is going to get a hound. And I thought to myself, this is never going to work. <laughs> um, you know, it's just my, my experience up to that point with hounds had been, uh, for the most part, training hounds for, for people who got them and, and didn't know what they were getting into. They, they got dogs that might have not had the greatest breeding or the greatest upbringing, and then they were under socialized, under exercised, under stimulated, spoiled. Um, and I just didn't enjoy the hounds that I had had uh, extended contact with. So mm -hmm. um, it, it certainly was not something I initially was on board with. And I really thought about, well, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's some other guy out there that'll be as interesting. But Clearly, I was wrong because now uh, between us, we have six hounds. Yep. He has four walkers, and I have two blue ticks. So I'm, I know um, <laughs> I was picking on you about blue dog, and I know. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I mean, I thought we taught you better, but <laughs> no, I you know I know you and I talked, and you know one of my one of my best dogs throughout my tenure, which was with bear hunting over the last twenty some years, um, was a little blue female named Belle which was straight out of Dale Cameron stuff. And, um, man, if I could replicate that dog, I'd have a whole kennel full of them. She was mm -hmm. just a pleasure. I mean, smart as a tack, learned very quick, was a really nice, you could do anything. She was so, like you just said about your dog, she was so versatile. I could rig her. And I didn't know what rigging was back then. I mean, she was one of my foundation dogs that actually got me started in rigging. And you could free cast her. I mean, you could road her. It didn't matter. Whatever mm -hmm. type of environment, deployment you needed her for, she done it. And, I mean, just super nice dogs. And for you blue dog enthusiasts, I'll, you know, I'll kind of throw this at you. Um, <laughs> if you know anything about uh, Dale Cameron stuff, I mean, Dale and I had a pretty good relationship. I uh, talked to him numerous times over, uh, you know, a 10-year ten, ten period um, with me and his dogs and you know, I was honored to have that relationship with him because he he taught me a lot. You know, even though he was plumb across the country, just the conversations and Dale's old school. But in his, in my three, I had two dogs. I had a dog named Belle and Clyde. And both of those dogs had Little Blue and Fly in their three-generation pedigree. And even back then, um, I think Belle was born in 90... No, I don't want to tell you wrong. She was probably born in 2000 or 2002. Yeah, she died. She was 12 years old when she died. So that she died in 14. So that'd be right. Um, 
those dogs back then you it was hard to find dogs even that close to little blue and fly and if you read dale's book or know anything about him they were they were like a, a mainstay in his his bloodline and at the time i didn't realize what i had but looking at it now it was really a, a honor for me to have dogs that was bred that well that i mean they were just phenomenal hounds they could trail mm-hmm. they had Clyde had, in fact, that's what ended up being Clyde's demise. He had too much grit. Um, mm-hmm. Got hurt too many times and got his stomach tore up. And tried. they tried to sew, sew it back together. And the intestines was a big issue. But anyway, so, yeah, I mean, I pick on her about the blue dog. But, <laughs> you know, I'm not colorblind, even though my, my kennel right now, if you walked in it, you'd say, oh, you're a walker dog, man. You know, <laughs> I, I was started with plots and I've owned every breed. And it just so happens right now, the Walker and Walker crosses are what it's what's working for me at this time. If I could find another blue dog like Belle, I would I would own it in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't. But yeah, I pick on pick on you about that. All right. So <laughs> did Taylor? Did he actually hunt before you guys met, or what decided him that he was going to get a bear dog at that point in time in his life? Well, so he had. I don't know exactly how long before that he had started um, going out hunting for bears. I think he said he basically um, sat spot and stalked for, or I don't even know if he stalked, just sat and waited for bears in areas that he he knew they frequented for Mm -hmm. a season. And he just said, he thought to himself, there's got to be a better way to do this. Um, So he started reaching out to, um, the Virginia bear hunters association and and different hunters in the area. And, um, gentlemen down in Culpeper responded to him and said, yeah, come on out. Um, and you know, the first year that Taylor went out, he didn't have a dog. Um, first season, he just wanted, you know, he helped with Al's dogs and, you know, caught dogs and was out until 2am chasing dogs down. Mm And, um, you know, really kind of basically put in the work and proved himself that, you know, I'm not, he's not someone that's just out there trying to kill a bear the easiest way he can. He really wanted to, um, embrace the lifestyle. And then, um, the year we met, he got, uh, his dog Ranger, the the first Mm -hmm. walker that he got, which, um, you know, working with Ranger, um, I was actually kind of in between training pets and taking my job at Quantico. So I spent a lot of time, um, training him and working with him and, the intelligence of that dog just really brought me to, you know, hounds are way more dog than I gave them credit for. And, um, I, you know, I really enjoyed working with him. My, I just like the way blue dogs look. I grew up, my mom trained and, and, uh, showed blue, blue Merle collies. So mm-hmm. I think I just got a liking for that kind of color pattern. Um, but yeah, his walkers are, you know, I, I love working with them. They're, they're definitely, They've got something different than my blue dogs do, but, um, yeah, I like them all. <laughs> but, but Ranger's a good, I mean, he's a good blanket back dog, got a good dark head. I mean. Yep. Yeah. I he's mean, a pretty dog. Yeah. So, all right. So Taylor's decided he's going to do this. Y'all get, y'all get Ranger. And of course I know where he come from. We've talked about it. Yeah. How, so talk to me about your blue dogs. Okay. What, I know, you know, I know a little bit about them. Let's tell the listeners. So. Um, okay, let's talk about how you, I really want to get into your head about selection. And you've raised numerous litters of pups on the working dog side. And mm-hmm. I know you and I are kind of on the same page with a lot of this stuff. And, you know, that's what I want to bring to the listeners. I want them to 
to see to to see things that we see and enlighten them with some things. So, all right. So you went and you got two other dogs too that you just got a female and yeah. So we've got um we had gotten a uh, a female last year uh, a female walker that's a half sister to ranger Mm -hmm. um and then another male that's a half brother Uh, they're all out of the same father same dad right yep yep. so we got them all mid to late last year and then i got my blue dogs um out of kentucky in september they were a little older than than the the walkers that we got um now did you did you have them when you come down here last time no, no, I didn't. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't. I know. I know. You just had the, the two dogs. Um, at the one. At one yeah, night. I I got them towards the end of September. Um, I can't remember when the last time we came down there was, but they were, you know, they were four months old. So. Gotcha. All um, right. So tell tell me you um. If you you what tell me what age that these pups were when you went to look mm-hmm. at them, what you did to ex- assess and how many was in the litter, how many was left. And how you mm-hmm. assessed that? Okay, this is this is what I want. This is this is stuff that I like. This is what I'm looking for genetically. And you know, t- tell us tell us what you, what you look for and what what the things that that reassures you that you're making a good solid pick. Sure. So Liberty, the female, uh, was one of three that were that the litter was bigger than that. Now there this was, is the Walker. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was, she was, uh, 10, 10 weeks, I'm pretty sure. Um, and we actually were going there to look at a male, but he had an injury. So I wanted to see how, how he was getting, getting on with it. If he seemed like he was still favoring that leg or not. And I told Taylor, we're not coming home with a female. <laughs> um, well, you know, the, the, one of the first things she did is, um, the, the breeder had a, a pig and the pig had spilled some food on the ground. And I mean, I say pig, it was, you know, 300 pound, like half feral oh, hog. Wow. Yeah. Um, and Liberty was trying, or the puppies were trying to get the, the pig's food through the fence. And the pig was kind of hitting the fence and trying to back the puppies off. And she just got mad and was, you know, like barking at the pig. And you could see like the more the pig tried to get her away from the food, the matter she got and um so that really impressed me that this little puppy had you know that kind of grit already i don't know that Mm -hmm. you know grit we can assess that at that age but um so that impressed me and then uh i also just like to look at how they interact with each other um how they are in the environment i usually like to take puppies when i'm selecting them to a, a strange, strange place, but yes, yep. Mm-hmm. Given the situation, that you know, it's not really feasible to do. Most of the hounds I've, you know, the ones that we've gotten have been out in the country. Not really something that you can load them up and go take them to PetSmart or you know a tractor supply. Um, but I just still like to watch how they interact with their environment, how they interact with each other, uh, who seems to be more independent, who seems to be more clingy. Um, I I really look at confidence. Confidence to me is that's not something that I can instill in a dog. I can take them places and I can expose them to things and I can let them have good experiences. But if they're not naturally a confident dog, I can't, I can't give them heart. Um, Right. And I I like to see, I try and get a feel for the litter as a whole. Um, Even just looking at three puppies, I can see, you know, if, 
are they all nervous? Are they all confident? Um, I think when you see a trend among the litter, you kind of can say, all right, that's probably genetic. And I should stay away. Right. Yeah. You know, if I've got, if I'm looking at six or seven puppies and they're all, um, reserved and they don't want me to touch them and they're spooking at loud noises. Well, that's probably not just an individual puppy thing. That's probably something that is being mm-hmm. passed down from the parents. Um, if, I've, if I'm looking at a bunch of puppies and one is a little more reserved, but the rest are pretty confident, then I f- figure that one's an outlier. So um, I'm trying to look for trends among the puppies. Um, hound puppies, Malinois can be tough because sometimes they're so easily stimulated. They'll just latch onto your pants and all be biting and barking and, mm-hmm. and not really taking in the world around them hounds are you know they're a little more level-headed i'd say so you know i can kind of see how they interact with me um and to give everybody I, a visual what she's saying if you don't know anything about a mally they call them a malligator or land shark or whatever you want to call them they're like a rat on acid that that's <laughs> the picture that she's painting and you <laughs> if you own one that doesn't act like that, it's probably not genetically programmed to do the work that we're trying to do with it. Yeah. yeah. And you can certainly look up videos of Malinois puppy litters and oh, find them like yes. <laughs> hanging like Velcro off of people. That's exactly um, right. But go ahead. So the, the hounds are a little more uh, level-headed and even-keeled compared to yeah. the working dogs that we're looking at. Um. So and I'll, I'll usually bring, uh, you know, either bring or look around. You know, a lot of times you're you're going to kind of a farm type environment. I'll find maybe pieces of metal or food bowls or an old feed sack, and I'm, I don't try and intentionally scare the puppies. I'm not chasing them around with things, trying to give them bad experiences. But I might drop a metal pan on uh, on a uh, concrete, or I might shake a, a feed sack around or flap a tarp around. Um, do some weird things just very briefly to see how the puppies react to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't expect them to be bulletproof, six foot tall and bulletproof. Uh, you know, they're puppies. They're going to startle. I would startle if someone dropped a, a metal object on the ground behind me. Um, what I'm looking for is recovery. So mm-hmm. um, what are the puppies doing? Do, does one take off and hide under the, the trailer and not come out? Does one come running up to investigate does one start barking um and you know it it's hard to sit down and and break down like oh i would rate this behavior like this because you're really trying to get a big picture you you can't look at anything in a vacuum and say oh this one behavior is negative now Mm -hmm. running away and hiding and shaking for 10 minutes is obviously negative but you know, barking or coming to investigate could both be positive things, depending on what you're looking for. So um, I'm trying to kind of paint that broad stroke picture of what is this puppy like? Um, and then I heard you mention a flirt pole. Um, I take a flirt pole with me, too. I yeah. usually get crazy looks. And, um, <laughs> you know, w- one of the breeders said to me, uh, I just had a flirt pole with a, a rag on it. And he couldn't believe that. Oh, no, it was a leather ball. And he could not believe that. I didn't have scent on the ball because the puppies were chasing it. And I explained, you know, I'm looking at their prey drive. Prey drive I want to see, right. yep, does does something that's moving quickly and kind of flipping around in the grass, does that trigger their prey drive? What do they do? Are they scared of it? Do they move towards it? Do they chase it? Do they bark at it? Um, and, you know, for, for me, I'm looking for prey drive. Um, I, you know, I want to see a dog that wants to chase it, has interest in it. 
But if there's a really confident puppy that is outgoing and investigating things and, you know, seems pretty independent, you know, I might give him a chance. My Malinois, the, the breeder loved him and was going to keep him. And then he said he wouldn't, he would not chase a rag. All he wanted to do, to do was bite his pants. The day I went to test him, he wouldn't chase the flirt pole. But I loved everything else about him. He had great food drive. He was outgoing. He was confident. I drove a mile away from his house, stopped to take him out to go to the bathroom, and he latched onto a little fuzzy toy I had on the end of a leash. And, you know, I took him home, and he has great drive. So, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you have to kind of make that that game time decision that, like, oh, you know, is every puppy going to be 100% in every category? Nope. So that's mm-hmm. that's been kind of my assessment for all of these litters of puppies. Um, with Liberty, you know, I told you she she was definitely a firecracker, um, has been, still is. Uh, looking back, I mean, I, I definitely still would have picked her, but I realize I like a little bit different type of hound. I feel like I've had enough Malinois, so <laughs> my my blue dogs are a little bit more laid back. Um, then your they were interested. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they were definitely interested in, in the flirt pole, but, um, not as intensely. One had caught wind of, um, some food that the owner had thrown or the breeder had thrown out in the back of the yard. And he just didn't care about anything else except trying to get the food. Even after we picked it up and threw it across the Creek, um, the, the bigger one I call Willie had more interest in the flirt pole. Um, they were both pretty outgoing, um, you know, I didn't see any major confidence issues there. Uh, they were pretty comfortable in, in their own environment, fine with a new person walking up, um, running around, exploring, chasing the house cat. Um, and it's funny because when I got them home, uh, it was a different story. And we can go into that when, uh, when you're ready to yep. transition to that part of the story. But, um, you know, as far as my puppy selection goes, I... I learned a ton from my time at Logan Haas uh, when it comes to raising and selecting puppies. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I'm not really one to brag, but I've had really good luck with the, the dogs that I've selected and raised and, and sold. Yep. Um, I, I just seem to, I don't know if I'm picking well or what I do with them works out, but um, I haven't had, knock on wood, I haven't had a lot that were just like, eh, this, this dog isn't going to work out. Um, when I'm talking about the, the Malinois and the Dutch Shepherds and the German right. Shepherds I raised. So I want to go, I want to go back and, and tap into that. So with the the litters that you raise or you've been mm-hmm. around or you've been a part of associated with, if you could tell the listeners one thing about l- raising a litter of puppies, and I know that there's <laughs> 50,000 things. I know that, you know that, but if you could emphasize, okay, when you're raising a litter of puppies, this is some, this is a, an important facet of raising a litter. What what would you recommend or what would you advise them to pay attention to or to make sure that they do? Or, mm-hmm. yeah, what, what would that be? I would say you, no matter what kind of working dog you're raising, you cannot keep a puppy in a kennel in your backyard or, you know, in, in your on your property for eight, 10 months and then expect to take mm-hmm. it out to its working environment and have it be a rock star. Yep. Um, you, you need to like the one thing I do above all else with all of my dogs is 
take them lots of places and safely. You know, if, if they're not fully vaccinated, I'm not taking them into Pet, PetSmart or Petco or the dog park. Um, yeah. But I have the, um, I'm, I'm really lucky to work somewhere that I can bring my dogs to work and there's artillery going off. There's helicopters landing uh, in the field right by where I park. The dogs can see Osprey's landing a hundred yards from them. Um, you know, the artillery, gunfire, lots of people walking, running, carrying packs. Um, they're see seeing all sorts of different sights and sounds and smells. Um, and, you know, it's a lot of work, especially if you, I live, you know, I live in the city, which mm -hmm. isn't, I don't love it. I wish I lived somewhere more rural, but it is nice that I can walk around my neighborhood and a trash truck drives by, a motorcycle drives by, uh, a truck pulling a, a trailer that's banging around. I've got, you know, people walking their dogs everywhere. I've got cats running around the neighborhood, kids screaming and playing ball. So um, I'm really big on, I'm not trying to force experiences. I'm not pushing the puppy right. into situations that it's scared of. I'm just trying to like, hey, we're just going to go and do normal things and you're going to experience the world and whatever happens, happens. And I try and make it good experiences. But, um, you know, I, if, if the only thing your dog sees is four walls of a kennel and, yeah. you know, the, the grass in your backyard, you, know, you don't know how they're going to act when you know, push comes to shove and, and you're taking them, taking them out to work, whether it's chasing bears or, um, you know, tracking down humans or searching for drugs. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I know I have said it here and I've said it on several podcasts that, that, that I've been on, it doesn't take, it doesn't take your whole day. A 15 minutes in your evening or morning is a lot more than none. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, some evenings, you know, with my work schedule, especially when the days are short, you know, it's dark when I go to work, it's dark when I come home, you know, I let my pups out for that, that 30 minutes that I'm feeding and let them do their thing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, yeah, I'm with you. I agree hundred percent. You don't have to spend every waking minute. The more time you can spend is better, but mm -hmm. yes, I, we, you know, we need people to understand that every minute you can spend is valuable. And, you know, for hounds, obviously they're not going out and working in urban environments. Um, I, yeah, I, I work on the side of Quantico where all the training areas are. So every day, or, you know, three, I get PT time three times a week. And mm -hmm. then I would stay late. I'd stay late after work and I would just go walk in the woods with them, let them play in the water and run through creeks and sniff around. And, um, because that's the environment they're going to be working in. I, you know, I want a dog that I can take everywhere. That's not going to be afraid of cars and people, but I also want them to be comfortable going out and exploring in the woods. Um, and you know, it's, it's not hard to find. There's, WMAs everywhere. There's national forests. There's there's mm. parks. Um, I just happen to work somewhere that I don't have to drive too far to to get yeah. into the woods. And you can do it while you're there, uh, which yep. makes it s s extremely convenient. All right, so good. All right, so you get um, you said you want to talk about. So you get Willie and Ladue. Mm -hmm. You get them home. Yep. And what changes once you get them there? So. Uh, now they're, they're older than most of the puppies I've gotten. So they're, you know, the, the first four months of their life they've spent in, on the breeder's property in Kentucky. 
So I get them back to my house and I, I thought I made the biggest mistake with Willie. You know, I, I only went there to get one puppy and I was having a hard time deciding between Willie was the bigger one and Ledoux was the smaller one. Um, and, you know, the breeder said, well, you know, with COVID going on, I really don't want a lot of people coming and going on my property. Why don't you take them both? Um, you know, he gave me a, a good deal on two puppies and I was like, well, you know, they're hounds. <laughs> it's, it's easy to have two of them at the same time. Um, so I got them back here and, and Willie was afraid of everything. Um, Changing you know, environments. Oh, uh, yeah. And, you know, I think that's something, too, that it, and I know better, but I also have these expectations of I'm used to these Malinois that, you know, are crashing around and <laughs> half the time don't even notice their environment. So I got him back here and, you know, a, a car drove by and he tried to run the other direction. And my Malinois barked because um, he barks a lot when he's playing and, you know, he about peed himself and, and tried to run and hide. And I just thought, well, you know, I guess he's going to make a nice pet for someone. But I also took into account th this is the first time he's been off the breeder's property. Um, and I liked what I saw there. So let me give him some time. Let me let me put the work into taking him out and exposing him. Um, and then Ledoux was was still pretty confident. Um, he's a little bit more of an independent. You know, he's kind of in his own head. Um, and they're a, a fairly tightly line bred litter. Um, but they're very different. I mean, they look, you, you wouldn't think they were from the same litter. They act very different. Um, but Ledoux definitely seemed to be more confident. Um, you know, I played with the flirt pole with him a little bit within a few days of getting home. Ton, tons of drive. Willie didn't even care about it. I mean, I couldn't get any interest from him. Um, but he, but he hadn't settled yet. Is that right? No, no. This was just, I mean, I drove from Kentucky I stayed at my friend's place in Fincastle, um, stayed overnight there uh, just to kind of cut the drive in half. Mm -hmm. And then I drove back to my place in Fredericksburg. Mm -hmm. And this was probably all within the first week or so. But, yep. you know, I, I figured it's not going to hurt for me to try and give him good experiences and, and build his confidence. I'm not, you know, not going to throw in the towel right away. And I'm glad I didn't because they just turned a year. And um, Willie has, I, I really, I like him a lot. Um, you know, I, I'm one of those people that I might, I had my Malinois Gamble and I had another puppy who was probably, uh, another puppy I got a year or so after Gamble. And he was probably a better all around dog, but I just, I like Gamble. He's my type of dog. And I kind of feel that way about Willie that, um, you know, I, I, I gave him a chance and he stuck around so long because I just like him. He's a, he's a nice dog to hang out with. Um, Ledoux is polite. Um, he, you know, he's got a nice temperament, but he's definitely in his own world. Um, and now Willie is the more confident one. Uh, I have friends in West Virginia who I, we've hunted with a little bit. Um, I, I pick her brain all the time. Um, it's my Aaron and Chris are their names. Um, they have a litter mate to my blue dogs. And they took Willie, they had him for five weeks, were training him for me, and they said he, he did great um, for never having experience. And the first time, actually, we hunted with them, uh, I had both Willie and Ledoux, and they both did great. Um, we, we happened to, there was a bear just sleeping right next to the road. It couldn't have been a be better scenario for young dogs. And um, the older dogs 
woke it up and pushed it out and it went right up a tree and the young dogs have to see it come out and go up the tree and um, have a really good experience. So good. That was just, that was at the very end of uh, training season in West Virginia. Well, our training season for non-residents. Right. Right. So what I'm hearing you say, and I'm reiterating this so that the listeners can understand that, you know, one thing that you and I understand, especially with knowing dog behavior, and I think you're way more advanced than I am, that you you have you can't rush things. And when a dog does act like Willie, a lot of times if you'll just let them be and like you ha- said, give them some positive experiences, with a little bit of time, they'll snap right out of that. Um, yep. Most I dogs think people. Will. Yeah, go ahead. I just think, you know, we have such high expectations. We expect that, you know, six, eight months old, this dog is going to be a a bear treeing, you know, uh, raccoon tracking, uh, drug finding, biting machine, depending on what kind of dog you have. And, you know, I think people don't develop that way. Why, Why do we expect that dog should? You know, some turn on young, and I've seen some that were, amazing at eight weeks and then they get to about a year and they're just it's like they they lose it and i see i've seen others that don't wake up until they're 10 12 months old um you know you you have to decide how long you're willing to wait i i'm not in a rush uh if i like a dog i'm i'm happy to keep it and i'll admit you know as i've gotten older i i start to get attached to him too and um <laughs> we do yeah. we do yeah and it makes it so i mean i have told myself this and you know the guys that i hunt with it's 10 times easier to keep a dog around that you like versus one that you don't mm-hmm. and when the ones that you don't makes you know silly mistakes or they don't do exactly what you want them to do they're usually the first ones that's that's out you know they're gone um and i'm guilty of that I'm really, I, I have been through my hound um, uh, experience, especially early on. And now and that's one thing that I've learned through the, the police side of things is patience and understanding the dog behavior and the maturity. And I talk, I've talked, we talk about that a lot. You know, you know, we, we got a Mally at six months old that'll fight a, a tank and you got mm. a shepherd who may be a little bit slower maturing and it don't want nothing to do with it. But at two years old, you've got a, a, a machine in a shepherd. Mm-hmm. So, and that's one thing that I've learned with my hounds. I, I understand more that, and, and I want to go back to the flirt pole about, about this, you know, I understand mm-hmm. more that certain dogs, I can watch the behavior, see what they're doing and, I know what I should or shouldn't be doing with the next step. And I think that helps, that helps, you know, you and I, because we know where we're at with that dog, where somebody that doesn't have the knowledge and background that you have, um, would force a dog into a situation or, and I, I, I mean, I'm, my, I've been guilty of this and the guys that I hunt with are still guilty of this. I personally, now if I'm coon hunting, it's different, but when I'm bear hunting, I personally am very skeptical about taking my dogs hunting before a year old. And I know mm-hmm. people's going, no, no, I want to know. You know, I, I've had several people here lately tell me, man, if they're not doing it at six and seven months old, they're not staying at my place. Okay, that's good. That's fine. But for me, 
and I've said it numerous times, you're taking a a, a five-year-old and you're putting it in the ring with Mike Tyson. Yeah. You know, the maturity level of that, that six and seven and eight-month-old, you have very special and unique dogs that can handle a butt whooping at that age, but the majority of them are not. Mm-hmm. So the maturity level... You know, taking your time, being patient with dogs, um, trying to watch you know the maturity level of what, how the dog acts, and not putting him in situations that mentally he can't handle and that stresses him. Where, like you said, it's not a positive experience; it's a negative. And if you add those negatives up, you're slowly but surely shutting that dog down. Yeah, with, they with can that. only handle so much stress. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and I, I mean, I've seen it and I'm, I'm guilty. Like I'll be the first one to raise my hand sitting in the back of the class. Yeah, that was me. Um, that's some of the things that I've learned from the canine world, uh, is how to gauge that stuff and look at it. So mm-hmm. let's talk about the flirt pole because I, I use it and I use it as a gauge. Um, so what, tell, tell me about what you're looking for when you do it and, and what you're doing with it. Yeah. That, I mean, that's a great way to put it. Um, so, like I said, I, I bring it when I'm testing puppies. Uh, and again, it, I don't have any defined expectations. I know what I think good looks like, or I know what I think interested looks like, and I know what I think disinterested looks like. And then there's this, you know, the whole spectrum in between. Um, when I get them home, it's, you know, it's a lot of fun, uh, especially, you know, when you've got little puppies that are uh, hollering and barking and chasing it and, um, you know, it definitely can be something that's easy to overdo. Um, but I'm not doing it. It's not a daily activity. Um, yeah. you know, I, I might bring it out a few times a week, uh, just maybe even less than that. Um, just to kind of see where their interest is. Like Willie wasn't very interested. So I put it up. I'm not like going to keep putting it in front of them and, throwing the, you know, the flirt pole on his face, trying to make him want to chase it because a lot of times you do the opposite and they get more disinterested because mm-hmm. they're like, yeah, you know, that thing again. Um, if I have a dog that's super interested, I still don't want to overdo it because it loses its novelty. Um, so I'll bring it out, um, you know, kind of see what their interest is. If I'm trying to work on maybe them getting them to bark at it, uh, I might use it for a few minutes for that. Um, as they, as they're getting older and, and, you know, or even as young puppies, I can, you can put scent on it. Um, I use it for doing drags. Um, so instead of just having something on the end of a string, I find having flirt pole or on the end of a rope, I find it's easier with the flirt pole because I can make it have a little bit more natural action and make it mm-hmm. kind of move like something alive. And I, I can make the, the hide or the rag or whatever it is twitch. And then if I get, interest and a reaction from the dog i can bring it alive and have it move a little faster and then when they're really interested um i can do a little short drag with it and let them follow their nose and and find the the hide at the end and then it's also nice to have the uh you know i usually go to a tractor supply and i'll get a, a buggy whip um or you know the little the shorter ones that don't have quite as much on the end of them um you know you can I'm sure everyone has their preference, but I kind of know what mechanically works for me. Um, and I can let them tug with it, and it, it allows me to have a little bit better, almost like a fishing pole. Yep. If I'm standing there with a rope wrapped around my hand trying to tug with them, that can start to hurt. Uh, mm-hmm. If I have the 
the the flare pole, it makes it easier to play tug with them. And then if they drop it, I can have it come alive again and snatch it away from them. Um, and I think the important thing is to not overdo it to where they're, they lose interest in the game. You always want them to be, they want to keep going and you take that thing away from them when they're still really interested. Yeah. And, you know, you're not, you're not letting them get bored of the game. You're not trying to force them into playing the game. If they're not interested, you can, you can always put it up and try again in a week or two. Um, you know, to me, I, I don't have a set timeline. It's just, it's that allows me to see kind of where they're at in their head, where their prey drive is at. Um, with Willie, I didn't, I don't think I, he saw the flirt pole for months. I think he was maybe eight, 10 months old. It wasn't very long before I sent him to training that we, I had a piece of hideout and I just wanted to see what he would do. And he went from, not really caring to losing his mind over it. Um, you know, just that's what maturity will get you. So, yeah. um, that, that's how, that's how it works for me. Yeah. I, and I do the same. Like I said, I had mine out uh, Monday or Tuesday, probably hadn't had it out in, well, I was gone out of, out of state. So I, it's been two weeks, but when I come home, uh, the second day I was home, I was like, okay, let's see where they're at. Let's see where the maturity level is. Um, five minutes max, um, did what I wanted to do and seen what I wanted to see and I put it up. And I, I think even with like, you know, the roll cages and stuff like that, I really feel like people overdo that stuff. They overstimulate. Um, they, they get too fixated on one thing and then it causes training problems down the road. But that's, mm -hmm. you know, that's just my opinion. So, all right. So you've got these dogs home. So, I mean, we could talk for hours and hours and hours on puppies and, and raising them and things. So, all right. So what was your – so so Taylor's got a dog. Um, Y'all mm -hmm. went and picked up another dog. Yep. And, you know, tell me – so last year was y'all's first year? Yes. Okay. So tell me about your experiences and tell me – yeah, tell me about your experiences first, and then I want to I wanna follow up with – you know, the things that, that from coming from the canine world to the hound world, what was the obstacles and the issues that you had to, to overcome and that you're learning? So let's go. What was your first experiences like? Okay. Well, actually, so the, the first time that we went out, uh, that I went out with Taylor, um, Ranger was still a puppy. So I think we had him with us, but he wasn't he wasn't running, um, was like the, for the last two days of the 2020 season. Um, and we didn't train any bears, but I just being out in the woods, watching and listening to the dogs, seeing them do something that they're just, you know, all their genetic wiring is telling them to go do this and listening to them, uh, the way they opened when they, they struck a track and listening to their voices carrying through the, the trees across the mountains. It was just, I felt like, my my motivation for for training had been kind of wavering for a while i think i was just you know once you do something for so long it's not quite as exciting and this just reignited my passion um so then we had you know from january until august to sit around and, and wait and he got another uh eight month old dog in in the meantime the dog didn't have any experience uh and he he's was a good example of a dog that hadn't had exposure and we really had to show them the world. Um, and then the first time, uh, we went out, you know, a few times 
by ourselves in, in August and just kind of felt like, you know, we, we don't really know what we're doing and we need to have, you know, we need to find some help. Um, and that's when you and I had some mutual friends on Facebook and I knew of you from the canine world and I thought, you know, and had heard you on podcasts and, and Taylor had talked about you and I said, well, you know what, what's the worst that can happen? I'm going to reach out to him and introduce myself and say, you know, I, I'm a student and I want to learn. Uh, you know, I've always learned being a sponge and being humble and just, you know, not being afraid to say, I don't know what I'm doing. Can you help me? Um, and you were gracious enough to invite us to come out. And we came out during uh, training season last year. And the first bear we saw ran, uh, we were following one of your other guys, mm -hmm. and the bear ran right in front of his truck. And we were able to pull the dogs out and let them go on, on that track, fresh, hot track. Like about as hot as you can get, I imagine. Uh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> that's a scorcher <laughs> there. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not ashamed to admit I got choked up. It was like this cathartic experience of, you know, I, I hadn't been out many times, but I realized the effort that it takes, uh, you know, climbing up mountains at six o'clock in the morning and being out all day and freezing and running down dogs late at night. And, you know, the, the effort that we had just put into our two dogs. And this was just, you know, and that if I wasn't hooked already, that to me it was just this roller coaster of emotions of like physical and mental exhaustion and frustration and you know the the thought of like is this are we really doing this right and to see our dogs like oh we know what we're out here to do we had sent Ranger to a trainer for a little while too so I mean seeing that click with them and them take off with the other dogs was it was just incredible um, so we you know we went out and and tr during training season with you a few times and then uh, treed a few more bears during the regular season. And actually I got sick and Taylor um, got his first bear when I was homesick. So I was a little, little butthurt about that, but I couldn't blame him. It, it was a nice bear um, <laughs> yeah. at the very end of, of the season. So um, hopefully this year is, is successful and our dogs are a little bit more experienced and we've, we're hoping to come out with you and we made some I made some friends in West Virginia who've been amazing mentors as well and we hope to hunt with them too and awesome. that's so that's how that's how our seasons have gone thus far and and how I've gotten hooked on on this on this addiction that we have <laughs> yes oh it, you know I think if if everyone and you know I, I haven't I am didn't grow up in a hunting family. I've never taken an animal. Um, I love to eat game. Uh, I don't have anything against killing an animal. It's just I've never been in the position to. And honestly, I really love just training the dogs. Mm -hmm. um, that That's what it is for me. But I think if everyone experienced the kind of rush you get from training a bear, there would be there would not be people addicted to bad substances because it's, <laughs> it's a it rush, is really yeah. an addiction. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and I think that's you know that's where you and I have that that commonality is, it's about the training, it's about taking the young dog or the inexperienced dog and seeing it fulfill what the genetics are bred to do, and that's that's exactly what drives me too. I mean that's mm -hmm. that's what I love to do. So, all right. So, yep. Um, you've you've got a couple bear, you, you know, you got, you're mm -hmm. on the right track. So what coming from the, from the police world and the military world, I mean, with the knowledge 
and experience and background that you have, did what has been the hurdles and, and like I said, the obstacles and the things that has um, been different for you? And I know that we know that the hounds do a completely different um different tasks than what we're asking in the other world but so what has been some of those things that's been you know that you've had to overcome or you've had to 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 navigate or learn through because you have Mm -hmm. the training you have the knowledge on dog behavior and training so what's what's Mm -hmm. it been so uh, all the knowledge in the world i i cannot i mean the frustration of not being able to control the variables. <laughs> it, it, I've never felt so unsure of myself and it's, it's an unfamiliar feeling. Um, you know, we always say, trust, trust the dog and trust your training. And I feel like now I am always unsure um, because we, you know, we can't put a bear out there and know exactly where it walked and exactly what path it took. You know, when you're training human tracking dogs or detection dogs, you can know exactly where you put the target odor, a target substance, and you can know the exact path that someone walked. So you know when the dog is being honest. You know when the dog is making mistakes. You can reward the behaviors that you want. And then when it comes time to be operational, you have that confidence because you've seen things a hundred times and you know how your dog acts when it's on target odor and when it's following the right track with with this i mean our and especially the the walkers are are very drivey they want to chase something mm-hmm. um and we didn't encounter a ton of bear where we were hunting last year so there was plenty of times where they would open and and take off because we we free cast a lot we don't have great areas to rig in in the areas that we hunt um and it's like that constant feeling of like are ah, are they on a bear are they on something else i don't and i you know i haven't learned the differences in their barks and their body language yet um and that has been you know i've picked your brain about it a ton i i'm always asking questions and trying to just to build this picture in my head of how do you know how do you know when when you don't see bear tracks and you don't see bear sign how do you know whether to trust your dog or not uh that that to me is like the constant thorn in my side with this. And it's not something I've, I've experienced. I come from a training background where controlled you set up your train. Yes. Yep. Yep. It's, yeah. it's controlled and I'm, you know, I'm a control freak. I'm a perfectionist. I make my training bulletproof so that I know, I know my dog when we go out on a deployment and here it's like, you don't, I don't trust the hounds. They're, I trust they want to run something, and I do think if given a bear or another animal, they would chase the bear. But when there's no bear, I, I'm not. Yeah. Yep. I don't know. Yeah, and I know that that. you know the. I think the last time that you had come down and we had rigged quite a bit that day, and when you got home, you texted me, and we had a conversation, and um, of course, it's vivid in my mind because you know when I started years ago, I remember I was in Canada back in the probably the late 90 maybe it may have been 99 2000 um i had the same question that you asked me and you're like all right heath you got four different trucks 
you got some dogs that are barking nonstop. You got some dogs that bark here and there, and then you got dogs that don't bark and, until they're supposed to. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you know? And of course, we went through the 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 process, you know, of of elimination. And I've got my dogs are tight mouth. Like the two dogs that I'm running right now, they have really good noses on them. They drift tracks. They catch game really fast, but unless that bear just walked across the road or it's a really good good track or the scent's holding good for that day, they're not going to say nothing. You may get a whimper. You may get a whine. And then you have mm-hmm. other guys that, you know, the dogs are barking, 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 and how do you know? And, that you know, I, that's when I told, you know, we go back to some of that control. Like the first thing I do is try to get them where I know they're not going to open on deer because that's my – that's one thing we have more than enough of. And then the second thing, which is my nemesis, is a coyote. You know, mm-hmm. that's I, I, they're not just standing out in the field like deer. They're harder to break off of. And, you know, you and I had went through that about, you know, the first thing to do is make sure that they're not going to run a deer on their own. You know, that's the first thing you do. And that way, when they do bark, you can eliminate that. Okay, I know they're not running a deer. And, and then you just start doing process of elimination. And, you know, you and I had talked about that and, um, that's part of that, you know, you and I understand that controlled environment, you know, you go in a room, you set the target odor up in a certain place and you can set up veritables and you can set up obstacles and we can manipulate and do things to get the dog to behave in a certain way where out in the wild, we don't have that luxury. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, is that an accurate, you know, picture yeah. of what, yeah. So yeah, and, you know, not only the variables when the dogs are near us, but when you cut them off leash and a deer jumps up out of the brush and runs across the track and they're hundreds of yards away from you, I mean, there, there's nothing you can do then, at least, you know, I, that I would feel comfortable doing. We talked about, you know, how we feel about correcting when we're not sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, we'll just kind of, I'll, I'll, we'll briefly go over that so everybody still, like I said, they hear me say it, like, I do not, I do not e. I do not use e on my dogs unless I know in one hundred percent. And sometimes that's even could be skewed. <laughs> but I like to go out, put my dogs where I see the deer. I watch the behavioral change, and very light stimulation, just tap, 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 and change their direction and change their mindset. Praise them for for coming back or doing whatever. And if my dogs do run junk, and I mean, I had a couple of junk races this past December, you know, it is what I got. My, my dogs are, were under three at the time. And I, you know, I don't, I don't, my expectations are, I don't, I don't expect them to be broke until probably next year. And that's because mm-hmm. of the length of time that I get to hunt. You know, our season's only three months and um, makes things difficult. So that's my expectations for me and my hounds. But then I, you know, I go out, I stimulate the dogs and we even talked about that. And, you know, as well, you know, you, you talk about context a lot in your training. If I drop the tailgate deer in the field, dog takes off, zap, 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 dog comes back. And if I do that 10 times, the 11th time when the bear crossed the road and I drop, drop my dog and he stands there, he goes up underneath the truck and then I get all mad. Well, the last mm-hmm. 10 times he got punished for jumping out of the truck and taking off. Yeah, um, it, it looks the same to the dog. It's yes. a, the animal. Yeah, <laughs> like everything else is the same. I don't, 
they're they're not sure if they can trust that they can run a bear. Yep. Or not. So yeah. And that makes it hard. I mean, you and I talked about that too. You know, uh, you you wanna you wanna stop some of the unwanted behavior, but it's it's a balance. In okay, I'm gonna slow it down, get them right, get them right, and then the more I get it right, the more I can put a stop to the behavior, which is a process. It's a journey. That's why we call this the journey. It doesn't (laughs) happen overnight. (laughs) Mm -hmm. All right. So, um, terminology, you talked about that a little bit. What was it with the terminology? Uh, it's just, you know, things that mean or have meant one thing to me, uh, sometimes have a different meaning. And then there's also these terms that, I've never heard before. Um, for instance, this is a simple one, but I'd never heard the, the word, the term jip before yep. referred to a female no. dog. Um, and, you know, that, that's an easy one to pick up, but there's certainly, um, you, you say drifting a track. Um, people say trailing versus, um, I, you know, I don't even know all the terms, so, but, yep. you know, I know like to me, when I say trailing, it means mm-hmm. something different than when a houndsman says trailing, uh, drifting. You know, there, there's things that I understand. If you show me what the dog is doing, I can say, oh, yeah, I've seen that before. I understand what that means in terms of how the dog is working odor, working a track, I've trained lots of human tracking dogs. But when someone says drifting, I mean, to me, I think of like, you know, fast cars skidding around turns. <laughs> um yeah. And I had to try and like put the pieces together. And, you know, if you listen to enough podcasts and you read enough Facebook posts and, um, you know, I, I read old, uh, old forums, I, I start to figure out like, okay, that, that's, I think this is what that means. And also I'm, I'm not too proud to just ask, um, you know, my, my friend Aaron in West Virginia, I'm always like sending her a message. What does this mean? Um, and yeah, I remember, when I was starting out working Malinois, I just, I asked a lot of questions and I, I feel bad sometimes because new people will come into a, a sport or a venue and you could tell they, they're used to being mocked for, or maybe just not getting a great response when they ask questions. And it's like, we've, we've all been there. Mm-hmm. We, we've all been new at something. So, uh, you know, I, there's just a lot of terms and I, I'm, I'm sure there's a laundry list that I could sit down and write, and there's going to be a bunch more that I don't know. Um, but it, you, that's one of the first challenges that I've had to overcome is I've got to learn to speak the language and not so much to fit in, but just to be able to have a conversation. Um, it's nice that you and I can talk because we speak, we can speak the same language and then you can mm-hmm. throw in the houndsman language and then I can relate it to, the, our working dog background, but um, talking to people that don't have that, that crossover background, I have to sit there and, and try and figure out how to, to speak the language they're speaking so then I can understand what they're telling me. Yeah, and when you in, when you talk about trailing, you know, you and I have been behind the lead, a 30-foot lead or a 15-foot lead of a dog who's actually mm-hmm. working a track. And mm-hmm. that, that definition of trailing to us is – is a lot different than what is in the hound world. Same word, mm-hmm. same action, different behavior. Mm-hmm. So yes, I mean, I like I said, I visually like when my dog's on a track. In fact, I don't even use trailing anymore. Um, 
my my dog is trailing because I I don't keep his head down. I let him do his own natural thing. But um, you know, when I'm on a track, I mean, you know, I I see my dog. I see what he's doing. I can tell you by the the tension in the lead if we're getting close or not. Like with the hounds, I don't have my hands on them. I'm listening to them. I'm listening mm-hmm. at the diff. I'm listening at the tone of their bark. I'm listening at the the length of their bark. I'm listening how long mm-hmm. they're being quiet before they bark. So all that terminology, yeah, I mean, I can I can understand and how someone coming into it would take some time to pick that up. And I feel like I'm blessed because kind of where I was raised into it um, started it at a younger age. That, but I had a mentor too. I mean, I had somebody that was you know, telling me the different, you know, when to treat my dog and when not to treat my dog, you know, on, mm-hmm. on, on this track, you need to sit back a minute. You need to make sure that dog locates. And then of course my first female, you know, on them older tracks, I wanted to get two or three locates out before I started getting tree happy. You know, if she was driving a track out of the edge of a cornfield, as soon as I heard her come up, I didn't even hesitate. So yeah, it's learning that stuff, learning the terminology. I can understand that. And I mean, that's, yep. you know, that's good for the new, the new people that's coming into this sport, um, is get with somebody that, that's been around and just like Taylor did. I mean, he, he, he pulled his time leading dogs, chasing dogs, staying up half the night, the dogs that wasn't his, that shows me that, Hey, he's really interested and I'm going to invest some time in him. Yeah. So, yep. Ariel, you and I could talk all night about these things. Um, and I know that we are going to have some more conversations that that's going to come up and we're, we're going to put out to the, to the listeners of the journey. So, um, I really, really, really appreciate you being on here. Um, is there anything that you would like to say in closing with this episode that you would want the listeners to know from your perspective? Sure. I, I would say as someone who has both kind of feet in in both pools where I have a lot of experience in one venue and I'm very much a novice in another venue, um, be genuine, be humble, ask questions, don't come in and, you know, expect to be running the show and, you know, and that's how I've kind of found my way so far with with the hounds is just by meeting you meeting Aaron and Chris and and asking questions and really I have a genuine interest and I I think um that goes a long way uh especially when you're trying to get into a community that can be kind of guarded because you do take a lot of criticism um you know you've got to be willing to put yourself out there and just say I'm new and I want to learn and please share your knowledge with me. Yeah. And I want to ask you one more thing too, because it just kind of a mind. I know what I just said. I was going to, we was going to cut mm-hmm. it off, but so from the police or from the military and the police side and the sports side that you have spent many years in, what is one thing that you have taken from that, um, that, um, side of the dog world? And what have you what have you implemented into your hounds? What is the one thing that you have taken from that and you are doing consistently with your? And I know there's a lot of them, but what's mm-hmm. one thing that stands out to you? Oh, um, let's see. 
it would have to be like the implementation of the, the odor work. And obviously I'm not training them to do detection in the same way. Mm -hmm. um, but introducing the, and you know, even if we have a piece of hide or um, scent in a bottle, um, introducing the odor and putting the emphasis on the dogs using their noses and not just getting overstimulated with the visual. Yeah. And I see the, I know we're getting to the end of this, but I see the parallels to me um, with detection dogs where I don't want to emphasize the final response on a, a drug dog or a bomb dog before the dog knows the odor and has mm -hmm. that really strong uh, association with the odor because then the dog defaults to giving their final response, whether it's a sit or a bark, um, when they get frustrated or bored. I see the same thing with the hounds. Um, <laughs> I feel like yeah. I really try to emphasize, I want a dog that knows how to use its nose, knows, knows how to follow a track. And I really believe, and, and Taylor and I, especially in the beginning, he was like, my ranger's not barking, ranger's not opening. And I said, just, just give it time. It'll come, yep. you know, just let's do drags. Let's let him learn how to work its nose. Don't even worry about putting the, the hide up the tree. Just let him find it on the ground. It'll come. And he's a great tree dog now. Um, yep. He had to so figure out that, what he was supposed to be following. Yep. And yeah. I, and I really think, um, I've, I've heard you talk about it. I see a lot of conversations about it. People get so fixated on what the dog does at the end. Yeah. I have really tried to embrace the, my knowledge of scent work and just understanding that if I can get the dog to, to use its nose, I, I don't have a nose like a dog does. Yeah. So I'm using the dog because of their nose. Mm -hmm. Let's develop that. Yeah. And I, I've made so many mistakes through my career with dogs even in the police in starting out in the police field and I'm way more mindful of it now that, you know, the, the cues that we send to the dogs, how the dogs respond to us and feed off of us. And just like what you're saying is, um, the odor is what they need to be following, not, and we know that when they're, they're using the nose they're using their hearing and they're using their eyes, they're using a lot of different things. Um, mm -hmm. That's the part of that picture, but that nose is why we are using them. Yep. Because they smell things we cannot. Yep. So exactly. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you there. So yeah, maybe our next one, if you're um, willing to come back on here a couple more times, because one's not going to do it. You know, we, <laughs> we we yeah, and I wanted to pick your brain on the neuroscience part of it. I know that's something you're really big into. That yep. you know that you like the psychology part of it, the animal behavior. I know you, you were, have studied, uh, you know, I call it Pavlo, Pavlo, however you want to see it, BF mm -hmm. Scanner, um, which is operant conditioning and classical conditioning. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe we can get into that um, here in the near future and kind of break that down with, with some of the training too and how you use those in your training with your hounds because, you know, I'm a proponent of it too. I mean, I'm, mm -hmm. you know, that most of our dogs are food hounds. I mean, they love yep. food, so you can get them to do a lot of things with food. <laughs> so, but Ariel, no, yeah. I, I sure appreciate your time. Like I said, I can't tell you, thank you enough for um, coming on here and, you know, just sharing your knowledge and, you know, the beginning and, 
you know, I want, I want to come back and kind of find out where you're at. And yeah, I hope you and Taylor come down and spend some time with us. Um, September, August, September, December, whatever you guys want to do, you know, you're always, you know, my door's open and, um, you know, we, we're glad to have you have y'all around. Yep, so. we're, we're looking forward to it. Can't, can't wait for August to get here. I'm counting, <laughs> counting the days. It's not going to, I mean, it's going to be here before you know it. That's for sure. Yeah. And I got to get my wheelbarrows out of the pen and get them, get them, get them honed down a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ariel. So at the end of the podcast, we're going to tell you, you know, I, I think with you, you know, you know the way, but you know, teach, teach, train and learn. That's what I'm going to say. You know, teach, train and mm-hmm. learn. And hopefully this is going to give our listeners a little bit. So, all right, we will, we will catch you on the next episode or next few episodes. I hope so. I'm looking forward to it. All right.